This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. I can't wait to discuss this book with Gabrielle Chan. Uh, She has been a reporter previously in the press gallery at uh, the state and federal levels. Um, She's since moved on from that part of her life and she, um, as she says in this book, met a farmer and uh, I guess the rest is history, although there's a lot that has developed since that point, um, to the the level that Gabrielle has actually written her second book, Why You Should Give an F About Farming. Uh, It's out through Penguin or Vintage Books is the imprint. And before uh, that, Gabrielle's first book was called Rusted Off. And uh, I believe she actually joined me in the Triple R studios when we were allowed to meet people in person and broadcast in person. So that was an exciting time. I think it was, gosh, maybe 2018. I'm not quite sure. Um, But uh, maybe it was 2019. But either way, it's great to have Gabrielle back onto the program. And uh, she now works for The Guardian and is doing great reporting work on rural and regional Australia there. So welcome, Gabrielle, and thank you very much for coming back onto the program. Thanks so much, Amy. I wish I could be there in person. I know. It was really quite fun and and I think there's a different experience when you get to sit down and like look at each other and, you know, nod and respond in <laughs> kind is, of yes. normal way. Human connections. Yeah. yeah. And that's one part of the reason why I think so many people love uh, living in rural and regional areas is because you have a really close human connections with people and everyone knows everyone and you know, there's a really beautifully tight-knit community. And although that does happen in some areas in in the city, it's not always the case. So uh, I wonder, you know, having come from a city area and and moved to regional Australia quite a while ago now, you know, what was the allure for you and what also potentially were some of the challenges? Well, the allure was simply that I I fell in love with someone that I wanted to be with. And the rural side of things to me at that stage was neither here nor there. It was just I was moving to this place where this person was. Um, And it took me a long time to settle into the place, to be frank. Um, Probably, I reckon, you know, five or ten years of really um, getting to know the community, understanding the human place on the landscape. All of these things were so foreign to me as someone who had grown up in the suburbs. You know, just even the sense of space. You know, I went from a three-metre-wide terrace in Surrey Hills in Sydney to um, you know acres and acres and acres, and and just getting used to that sense of space when you'd had a wholly interior world um, was quite a challenge. So um, I think it changes actually your outlook. Yeah. Well, I think being in an urban context and even just commuting back to a regional area, um, you can get a sense of relief at some point because there is a kind of different feeling in a place that's crammed in with less green space and a lot of noise and pollution and you get out to a regional area and there's just something about it that shifts your mentality. 
Yeah, it is. And it's not to say that it's sort of better or worse. It just, I do, I do think, though, it, it does change. Well it's, well, it's changed my brain, put it that way. Mm. I mean, I think there has been some scientific studies about the effect of nature on brains that are pretty interesting, but um, it does really change your world. And I think that's why it's important to have green spaces in cities as well. Yeah. And not all farms are the same as we discover in this book, why you should give an F about farming. And obviously in New South Wales, there's a lot of diversity in terms of the types of farms. And um, as I was saying to you, I interviewed Charlie Massey on the program earlier in the year and um, he highlighted some amazing case studies in his book Call of the Reed Warbler and uh, you highlight in different ways the fact that there are so many different approaches to agriculture and farming so I thought we might spring from your own farm um, and to get a sense of what it's like where you are um, as a, a, a starting off point. Yeah so we we uh are on a very traditional sheep and wheat farm. Uh, it's a multi-generational farm uh, run by my husband's family. Um, and it, it's, it's a mixed farm in that it has animals and crops. That we went through a stage, uh, not us personally, but I think farming went through a stage where they pivoted to m more crops than animals, and I think that's maybe coming back now um, as as the science changes on uh, what's required for you know things like increasing soil carbon and um, and that sort of thing. So, but very much a traditional farm and around this area which is west of Canberra uh, it's still largely family farms around here um, when I started doing the interviews for the books though um, I discovered all sorts of models of farming and changes particularly along riverways like the Murray-Darling Basin uh, where big irrigators are moving in um, there's a lot of interest from corporate farms uh, in in irrigated crops like um, nut crops permanent plantings they're trees essentially that have to be watered every year uh, and then at the other end of the spectrum there's the a, a rise in regenerative models, so the um, whether they're large or small, um, really changing the way that they look at uh, what they do, and you'll often get a regenerative farmer like um, Charlie, who will think of themselves as grass farmers and use animals just as tools. You know that animals aren't the the key thing. The, the it's actually looking after environmental, um, certain environmental things and landscapes rather than um, thinking purely about production and yields. Mm. And we'll get to that aspect of the book in a moment, but I wanted to touch on the earlier chapters in the book and look at the agricultural sector and farming from that big picture that you do uh, and, and obviously its significance to Australia, not just in an economic sense, which is clearly, you know, very big, um, but also in this cultural sense as well. So uh, you point out that Australian farmers manage up to 60% of the country's land mass and account for up to 70% of its diverted freshwater extractions. And you draw from that really a point that is we all have a stake in farmers doing their job well. Um, 
And that's because there are so many existential threats that you highlight and that many farmers are well aware of being climate change, water shortages, soil loss, energy production, natural disasters, zoonotic diseases like COVID-19, population displacement and geopolitical trade wars like we've seen with China in recent times. So in terms of that big picture that I've just kind of referenced and that you explore in great depth, what is the significance of farming to Australia? And I know this might be quite obvious to farmers, but for the, for the uninitiated, uh, you know, what are some of these touch points in terms of its significance? Okay, so we're, we're seeing this, you know, the change in um, world governments of, uh, around the climate change challenges uh, and and emissions challenges and all of those things you touched on. So the farmers manage up to 60% of the landscape. So that's a really important job, you know, how we, how we manage landscape and humans are a part of landscape. Humans have been a part of landscape for, you know, a very long time. But often in our political debates, we have these kind of crazy binary debates where you say either we lock up environment or we slash and burn. Well, we've got to work out ways for humans to live on landscapes. So for me, the question is not about how to feed the planet because we do produce a lot of food. The question is how you feed the planet while looking after the planet. Uh, and, and I think that's the challenge is the part of the challenge that farmers are starting to address now and governments are thinking about it. So for example, uh, in the United Kingdom, as they've come out of Brexit, they've come from a very subsidised system in the European Union where, where farmers are subsidised for the production, their food production. The UK is now looking at a system where farmers will uh, get the same subsidies, but those subsidies will be targeted at what environmental services they provide. So that is um, improving their water quality, improving their um, their habitat on their farms. So that becomes a, a different income source to the income source of food production. Um, it, we have to acknowledge uh, that eaters have a have a part in this play. You know, I often hear when we talk about say water debates around the Murray Darling Bay, Basin. You know, those bloody irrigators—they're taking all this water and uh, but. You know, if you're eating the food that that the irrigation grows, then there you do have a, a part in this whole story. So, th so there's that aspect. Um, farmers, on the other hand, have to acknowledge that what they do within their boundary fences has an effect on the broader climate. So you can't say, oh, well, this is my land and, and therefore I can do whatever I want. We acknowledge that there's this trade-off, there's this contract between farmers and eaters, land managers, and I include, you know, I'm, I want to underline, I include Indigenous farmers in this and Indigenous land managers. Uh, Indigenous rangers are managing a huge proportion of Australia's land and that program is increasing Um and, and it has been funded for the medium term now, which is a big step forward for the Indigenous Ranger programs. So all of these aspects, how we manage 
our continent, how we feed ourselves, all of these things are going to be critical in the coming decades as we sort of head towards a population globally of $10 billion. And that that global population projection is, is really pricking up the ears of big um, capital uh, as they get more and more interested in both the food production business and the landscape management business because these two things uh, are going to be income streams uh, over the next three decades. Absolutely. And you do point out later on in this book that uh, on the climate change point uh, that we're really lacking government leadership, not just on climate change, obviously, but the ways that it affects food and agriculture uh, and all the kind of areas and sectors that are related to that. Um, you point out that at least 12 departments are involved in national food-related program programs uh, covering responsibilities in agriculture, fisheries and forestry, industry, education and employment, finance, foreign affairs and trade, families and housing, Indigenous affairs, health and ageing, infrastructure, PM&C, regional Australia, environment and treasury. And you go on to point out something I thought was quite important, which is about the National Climate Change Adaptation Research Facility um, that pointed out these responsibilities um, and was a cross-disciplinary organisation designed to support decision-makers to manage climate change risks. Um, it sounds like you say that it was finally declared deceased in 2019, uh, being established by the Howard government and gradually starved of funding from successive coalition governments. It's interesting to see that this government uh, has had a real disinterest in climate change apart from some of its pet projects uh, that involve technology. And yet farming and food security uh, really is tied to climate change. And even these great bodies who do the research and write the reports have pointed that out. So I wonder whether, you know, part of the reason why we're not making progress on a national food security policy is because climate change makes up such a big part of it. Yeah. Um, the all of those uh, reports, all of those policy institutes, we used to have something called Land and Water Australia, which was a really important um, policy institute uh, funded by government to, to look at these strategic assets, you know, the important environmental and national strategic assets. And it, uh, when I started doing the interviews for these books. I sort of went into the agriculture sector and started talking to people about this, but it was actually the um, the national strategic bodies like the Australian Strategic Policy Institute uh, that was doing some deep thinking on this. The, um, the Defence Department has done submissions to various government and parliamentary committees on the importance of dealing with land management and climate change as a as a um, defence uh, related issue. That these things are kind of fundamental to our our strategic interests, and yet we think of them as this kind of well. Well, the debate certainly has been in the last decade as if it's just some little you know 
uh, argument off to the side about, you know, whether or not we want to keep a certain amount of furry critters. This is kind of fundamental to our survival as humans and to the landscape survival. And so I think you're seeing more um, voices now coming out. I mean, even today uh, in The Guardian, there's a former senior defence official, Cheryl Durant, who's talking about the strategic weaknesses on climate policy. Uh, soldiers are trained to kind of consider threats, you know. Journalists, um, we sort of look at national architecture and, and sometimes find, you know, press it for weaknesses and see where the weaknesses are. And I think that we have to be more realistic about, you know, what's happening around us and connect the dots more um, because these policy institutes, land and water is dead now, it was defunded by, uh, shut down by a, a Labor government. You know, NCAF, the climate research facility shut down under a Liberal government. There's not that sort of long-term thinking, I think, and that's part of the problem. You know, we're getting into this political cycle where governments are saying, oh, well, I don't like that because it was the idea of the last government. We won't continue on with that. We have to have some long-term thinking if we're going to if if we're going to get through these uh, these real kind of fundamental holes in our policy architecture. Mm. <clears throat> and you do point out that uh, Australia has no national food policy, no national drought policy, a Hunger Games-style water policy, a cursory climate policy, and no vision for how land management and environmental assets should fit with farming and food security in a warming climate. And I've, something that really, I guess, struck me later on in the book that relates back to that is how government is shaping farming and how they have set in place, uh, I guess, policies and support structures to encourage larger scale farms and corporatization of farming, uh, whereas I guess they haven't provided that same support to the small and medium-sized farms. So I wondered if you could give us an idea of that landscape in terms of small, medium and, and large-scale farming and how that has been either supported or um, been neglected by federal governments? Well, I think this is a, this is a kind of philosophical question in, in some respects. Since I was a baby journalist in the 80s, you know, we've, we've grown up with this sort of deregulation agenda that really started with the Hawke-Keating government. Uh, and I interviewed John Caron, the former agriculture minister in the Hawke-Keating government, um, and he was really interesting because he said, you know, we were trying to open up the economy, but at the same time we wanted to keep some kind of um, uh, underpinning of national resilience. But I think Governments have got carried away with that whole deregulation agenda to the point where we get to the start of this pandemic and uh, government turns around and finds, oh, we've got no capacity to make personal protective gear or we've got no capacity to make hand sanitizer in a pandemic um, or we've got no capacity uh, to, to grow certain particular foods that may be shutting down on borders elsewhere. And so I think we, we really bought into the idea that 
a deregulated market was the natural, in inverted commas, market system uh, that that humans would naturally um, trade in open ways. But it, it's just not true. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, we still have regulations. We still have laws. So essentially uh, the way I see it is that we re-regulated to... to favour other interests, I think, is what happens. And so now an example might be the water market where you, you, we've created one of the most laissez-faire water markets in the world. Water is a commodity. The theory was fabulous. You, you, you make water a commodity, you value it, put a high value on it in times when it's short, like drought, and it will drop. The price will drop in times when it's plentiful. Um, but what that did was it sends water as the government designed to the highest possible use. Now, the, the, the view at that time was that annual crops, which have more flexibility, would get more of the water, that we would be growing these things that are suited to Australia as a drought, um, quite a drought, Droughts are quite common in Australia. So if you were going into drought, you just wouldn't grow the crop, you wouldn't use the water, all well and good. But what's happened is highest value on a market global market price are things like almonds. Mm. Almonds are grown on trees, which are permanent crops. Permanent crops need water every year. And so, you know, we're stuck in this cycle where we're growing more and more um, permanent uh, crops like nuts, and we're moving away from things like dairy. We're moving away from the annual, the annual crops. And you know, is this how we would design a system if, if you know, we had our that we had the hindsight that we have now? I mean, the other thing about water markets is they're not very transparent, so it's hard to see into. Uh, water markets that are priced on different valleys, different places. Uh, and so that's creating an advantage for people who have big resources to get the analysts to work out the technologies. Some of these systems require an email through a gate at a certain time. And that favours people who have uh, big money to invest. It doesn't favour the small to medium family farmer who's getting home at the end of the day and trying to do the water trades on top of everything else they're trying to do. So, you know, I think we have to have a think about economic diversity. I'm not saying all corporate farmers are bad. I'm not saying all big farmers are bad, big corporatised families are bad. I'm just saying we want to look at this so that we've got some economic diversity in the system because the other thing that very large operations do is they have large-scale efficiencies, they require less people, they use less more technology. And so those little towns that government talks about every time there's a drought, how important it is that we have these little towns, that's actually contradictory with, um, you know, their push for more global capital into farming. Yeah, and you point out that, you know, this productivity through technology um, doesn't necessarily increase the number of employees that a farm will uh, have on their books. So that's another kind of component to it. And I wanted to pick up on that water chapter because you show just how Australia is influenced by global agricultural issues like 
2015 when the Californian drought pushed the almond industry to look globally um, because then uh, they were producing 80% of global export almonds and uh, found Mildura and, you know, as you said, the rest is history in terms of the utilisation of water um, and that yearly requirement of high levels of water to keep almond crops going. Um, so when we're looking at that global picture as well, I wanted to pick up on something you raise and it's really kind of like the crux of this book, which is that, quote, we use a proportion of imported stuff to grow food and then sell that food in Australia or ship it out as the raw commodity so others can turn it into the final product. Um, that picks up on what you've just said around manufacturing uh, as well as obviously being reliant on other countries, which we saw with the PPE issue and the hand sanitizer earlier in the year. So I wondered if you could just draw out that, essential sentence there and and how Australia potentially used to do more, um, but we don't now. And, and I guess that leads to food insecurity and other types of insecurity with a decline in manufacturing and this reliance on countries like China for chemicals. Yeah, I, uh, we, we heard at the start of the pandemic, if people can remember back when we had those empty shelves and the government was trying to calm everyone down and say we are, we are, are very food secure, we produce a lot, we, we export more than half of what we produce, uh, nothing to see here. And I get that they were trying to calm everyone down and not cause a rush on the shops. But the, the reality is we are part of global... Uh, supply chain interdependencies. So, you know, every crop we grow, we need to use the tractor. 90% of Australia's fuel is imported. Um, pretty much every widget uh, in the shed that we use here is either imported. Um, the, the headers, the tractors, everything uh, comes in from overseas. And so, Yes, we produce a lot of wheat, we produce a lot of beef, we produce a lot of almonds, but, Amy, if I want to get my wheat to you in the form of a loaf of bread, um, how do I do that? I can't dump a tonne of wheat on your doorstep for you to mill and make into bread. Um, how do I get them to you in, in the form of noodles? So what happens now is, say, Australia grows a lot of wheat the wheat goes overseas to places like Indonesia. It's made into noodles, put into a packet, brought back on the supermarket shelf. Does that make an Australian product or does that make an Indonesian product? So these things, are, are, we're very interdependent. We, we don't make things like, um, last time I checked, Tetra Pak. So we might, make, we might produce milk. But... I can't get it to you if uh, if I don't have the Tetra Pak to put it in. So it's a bit simplistic to say, you know, we are this massively food secure nation. Like I think we have to look again at interdependencies. And again, we've done the reports. We've done the work. Stephen Bartos, uh, for a senior public servant, has done a fantastic report in 2012 about food resilience and it identified after the Queensland floods which is when it was commissioned that there were all these holes in the food supply chains he wrote that report he said the biggest threat are multi uh, or um, disasters and and supply chain threats in combination like bushfires floods 
pandemics. He actually wrote that in 2012-13, way before we had the bushfires in 2019, followed by the floods, followed by the pandemic. <laughs> it's, mm. you know, there are smart people here. I'm just the journo. There are smart people that have written all these reports. You know, Professor Andrew Campbell, head of ACR now, but did this fantastic report on how we need to diversify our our supply chains. So you have short local supply chains that, you know, go where your food is just produced in your district, regional supply chains where it goes out maybe a bit further or into the capital cities, and then global supply chains uh, so that there's resilience. And I, I... had calls from um, a lot of small farmers who said, you know, might be producing and milling their own wheat and baking their own bread. And they were absolutely run over in the pandemic because everyone suddenly started thinking, oh, I can't get my my products from my big duopoly supermarket. I might have to look locally. And so they picked up a lot of new customers um, in that period because people were starting to think more creatively about where to get their food. And remember, also, we all went into veggie growing. Uh, There was a supply of uh, shortage of seeds and and shortage of flour on the shelves as we all started baking. So all of these things I think really need looking at again because even though we think we've solved the problem, the food issue, it's not as uh, seamless as we think. No, and you do say that when you spoke to Stephen Bartos in April 2020, he was quite optimistic saying, quote, the good thing is that coming out of COVID, I'm sure this is going to be more of a priority. Uh, And you point out more than a year onwards, nothing has changed. So, I mean, we can have these kind of moments of clarity, just like we had with bushfires and climate change, uh, but it's what you do after that and keeping it on the agenda, which is so difficult in politics at the moment, and obviously for those who are advocating for change. Um, I wanted to pick up on one area before we get to regenerative farming, and that was about dairy farming, which you mentioned earlier, and that Australia is really um, walking away from that more and more, and dairy farmers have been put under a lot of price pressures as well, and that would have been something people would have seen in the news, and you've referenced about the the dollar milk and that kind of thing. So I wondered, what's that underlying story as to why Australia, you know, who's had a, a certainly an identity or at least part of their identity beyond sheep and wool, um, as being dairy farming and dairy farming nation, why are we not seeing as many dairy farmers nowadays? Uh, The dairy story is a really interesting one because dairy was heavily protected uh, in Australia's history and then went through the deregulation era under the Howard government. And so there was a a sort of shaking out of the industry, that initial shaking out where the where the numbers fell rapidly, and and dairy farmers had to increase their scale in order to um, stay in the business. So there was that stage. the The second stage of the dairy shakeout, I think, has been uh, the the dollar milk and the and the pressure uh, on producers to um, to create a cheaper product. And there's no doubt there are dairy companies, very large dairy companies that are uh, managing to make money out of dairy 
it's harder for the small to medium people in, the, in that industry. And then the third stage of this is the water stage that we're seeing now. And and I think um, as we went into drought, the last drought, which is probably a couple of years ago now, water prices just were became too high for the average dairy farmer who relied on irrigated feed crops for their cows the prices were too high for them to compete with the almonds that get a much higher price in the supermarket shelves so if you're if you're squeezed on the one hand to produce a very cheap liter of milk and then you, your production costs in order to feed your cows to keep them milking are too high the two just don't add up. You know, yeah. something something's got to give, and and it was a lot of dairy farmers that ended up giving. And I think a lot of people may not know this, but you know, Australia is now a net importer of dairy, so we we're not making as much dairy as we uh, used to. And I think that's a question that that w- another question we need to think about. So the Modern economic paradigm, um, the market first paradigm says, well, if you can't produce produce a litre of milk as cheap as, say, New Zealand, well, you just drop that industry and you buy it from New Zealand. But as we've seen, you know, through the pandemic, we had that argument about rice too. But Vietnam, who is a big exporter of rice and we import from Vietnam, they shut their, their shut off their rice exports because they wanted to keep the food for their own nation. And so then you're left without a product on the shelf unless unless you've got local growers. So in a sense, they, all these policy arguments are long-term arguments, um, long-term strategic policies that we need to bed down. But but that the debate is trapped in this short-term political cycle. So yeah. the easy answer is always, oh, well, you just let the dairy industry grow, right, because we can buy it cheaper from New Zealand. And you can buy it cheaper until you can't. Exactly. And then when the, price, <laughs> when the price rises, you end up paying a higher price that you may have been able to pay to your own farmers to keep them, <laughs> to keep them you know, producing locally. So all of these things are trade-offs. And I'm not saying that, um, you know, we should go back to a protection era by any stretch. I'm just saying you may want to have a look at this because, I mean, hey, I'm 55. I've got grandchildren. Uh, I'm thinking about my grandchildren more than myself and thinking, well, what world do I want to see them land in? They're all value judgments, right? There's no right or wrong answer in any of these questions. It's just like, what do Australians want? And then how can we put it in place? Yeah, I don't think anyone would... Well, not people that I'm aware of would know that we're a net importer of dairy. So it does kind of highlight that we're not having this as a public discussion amongst many in the population. Clearly, it is, you know, restricted to certain sectors and and groups of people that it directly involves at an economic and business level. And sadly, we're, you know, engaging or supporting short-term thinking in our governments. So, you know, I think personally, that we shouldn't be doing that and we should make sure that we have enough access to these products when no doubt another pandemic down the track will occur, which we've been warned about for decades now. Um, 
Gabrielle, I wanted to just finally touch on regenerative agriculture and your chapter on disruption, given that it's something that really does, um, well, disrupt the sector and it is a very different approach. And you highlight the inherent tensions uh, between those who are engaging in the more traditional practices of farming versus the regenerative practices. Uh, and you use a case study from the Heffernans who are doing regenerative work to improve their landscape, to plant 60,000 trees and shrubs on his land, um, fencing off creeks and dams, developing a fish sanctuary for their southern pygmy perch, uh, all these kinds of things. He, Vince Heffernan, for example, you say, is a sixth-generation farmer living and working on 1,200 hectares uh, near Dalton in New South Wales and engages in biodynamic farming. Uh, so I wanted to, I guess, touch on that case study you brought in and also ask about the people who might be hesitant or um, have resistance towards this type of farming and, and maybe the disconnect that might exist and, and perhaps um, that they're not necessarily that far apart but there seems to be, I guess, a lot of ongoing tension between these t practices and, and approaches to farming. Yeah, yeah. There's, um, so Vince is uh, an interesting case because he has been doing this for a couple of decades now uh, and biodynamics is no sort of new uh, system of farming. It's been around for a while. Um, but I think the tension in the industry is is. Uh, around maybe more the stories and the marketing uh, that that in just the word regenerative itself, I say in the book, uh, is like a trigger word to some um, more traditional farmers because the implication is, well, if you're not regenerative, you're degenerative. Um, the interesting thing, a couple of things about regen farming, that to me, the definition, and the definition is very is is argued in the industry. But for me, a definition of regenerative farming is anything that improves your environment and landscape on verifiable measures. Right. So if you've mm. got increased ground cover, if you've got more trees and habitat, if your soil carbon is going up, uh, if your water quality is going up, or any of those things together and you're measuring and you're watching that, then that's regeneration by definition, right? So I think um, the industry gets caught up in all these different um, practices. What does it mean? What does it do? Well, the bottom line is if you're regenerating, you're improving your outcomes. Also improving your bottom line. You want to improve your bottom line. Um, I think the the other interesting thing about regenerative ag is it has incredible um, sector engagement. It has incredible market engagement. Eaters, people who buy the products, love the idea of regenerative farming. I don't think there's any, any doubt about that. So, you know, you can have good farmers and bad farmers using all different systems, but I think the bottom line is you have to engage as a farmer with your eaters uh, and, and you know, there is going to be pressure to increase your environmental outcomes. One of the bright spots, I think, in government policy is David Littleproud, the Agriculture Minister's um, Carbon Plus Biodiversity Programs, which is now looking at how farmers 
within the, the their current economic systems can be paid an income source for improving their carbon, improving their biodiversity. And I think that would be, go a long way in sending the right economic signals to farmers that you can actually get paid for this. Um, part of the disconnection between the two is a sort of fear that if you change to a more regenerative system, you're going to lose income. Because the current way that farmers are paid is on yield. The bigger your crop, the more you're going to get paid because farmers are price takers largely. The interesting thing about Vince Heffernan's model is he has created this regenerative system through his biodynamics. He also gets paid more for his lamb. He gets paid, you know, restaurants have picked it up. He, he sells whole animals um, boxed to uh, customers, home customers. You can't buy just the chops or the mince. You've got to buy the whole animal and use it. Um, it makes it simpler for him. Uh, it's, it, it cuts down on waste. Um, so all these new systems that are coming in, I think, are really going to disrupt the farming landscape. And there's a massive heated argument about which one's right and which one's wrong. I think there's scope for everyone uh, in, a, in a very large country like Australia, but definitely heading in the, in the direction of, you know, you're going to have to look after the environment in your farming system, whatever farming system you use, because global there's going to be carbon tariffs in other countries. People want to see into your supply chain, and that's the big change coming in farming. Mm. And it's interesting because you also say that he partnered with a specialty butcher called Feather and Bone um, and has been doing so for the last 14 years, um, and they've been buying those whole animals as well, not just the, the kind of direct customers, which he also sells to, um, supplying the restaurant trade, and I guess being another outlet for his work and also meaning that he still gets paid higher rates than in the supermarkets, which are wanting uniform products and, uh, as he pointed out, that they're making a huge amount of profit on the meat that they're actually receiving. Yeah, I, and I think that was a big thing for Vince was that he felt like he was in an economic stranglehold um, from the supermarkets. And he, he, he made the point, which is actually really true, he said no one's uh, as disinterested in where their product goes as a farmer because they're kind of on to the next harvest or on to the next job. You know, they're not thinking about where it goes after the farm gate. Um, but uh, he said, you know, they can complain about um, red tape and green tape and all this sort of stuff, but they just let the processors and the retailers um, screw them in some senses. So uh, I think the economic signals are really important part of um, getting the environmental signals right. And I think if Little Proud can get this program off the ground, it will be really interesting to see farmers by 2030, maybe they're going to get start getting a portion of their income from environmental services and a portion from food production. And that, I think, will be a big breakthrough if that can happen. Yeah. 
And just finally, Gabrielle, you know, you've mentioned there that people buying these almonds that are using up all the water uh, in Mildura as just one example, and obviously buying from supermarkets the cheaper milk and buying from supermarkets the the meat that's sold at very um, high profits for supermarkets and large companies. I mean, these are all things that we are actively engaged with as consumers of food. Um, Some also produce food who might be listening right now. So what are some of the things that we can directly do to show that we give an F about farming, which is the whole point of this book? Well, I think connecting up with local growers is one thing that um, people can do. I think, um, uh, you know, buying Australian product uh, is another thing. Thinking about the food miles and thinking about, um, uh, you know, emissions in terms of of that sort of thing. Um, All of these things, I think just educating yourself on, on where the food comes from and what you, what, I guess what values you want to show. Uh, (laughs) I really loved um, talking to Mike Lee, the the food consultant in America who who thinks about, you know, food as emotion, food as politics, and now younger generations are really using food to signal what values they want to show. And and it's very... um, it's very controversial in terms of, you know, whether you're going to eat meat or not or whether you're going to – I think just moderation, right, like mm. a little bit of everything. And that was the point that Mike Lee was trying to make. You know, almonds, um, maybe almond almond milk starts as this sort of um, idea that, oh, well, you might be able to save dairy cows or whatever from, um, from what they have to do. But it, it's blown up into this kind of very large industry that's sucking up a lot of water. So whenever we love something, we we love something too much. We tend to get into – and I, I do it myself with my food choices. You know, I love one thing and so I'll have a lot of it. Um, it I think the, the message that was um, put through to me from so many people I interviewed was just like a little bit of everything, a bit of moderation, you know, um, don't rule anything out or in, just try a bit of everything. And I think that's my mantra going forward. Yeah. And it's also really good for you nutritionally because you do need that diversity of food sources. Exactly, exactly. I think that Mike said, you know, you see this massive diversity when you walk into a big supermarket and and it basically comes from, you know, 12 different uh plant crops and and five different animal species and goes to create all these different products so you think you're getting diversity but actually we we as humans we love to concentrate and specialize um i just think a little less specialty and a little more sort of interconnected um food systems would be a great thing for australia absolutely well thank you so much gabrielle for taking the time to chat with us about your new book why you should give a F about farming, which uh, is really extensive in terms of the topics covered and very engaging. So I appreciate the work you're doing on uh, farming and regional and rural Australia. Thank you, Amy. It was an absolute pleasure. Great to chat and I hope you have a great week. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.